Days. Tan Talk. Entertaining and informative radio for the Sunshine State. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car's been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. Ever since folks could remember, Stroker Ace hated only one thing, second place. Now, he's the best there is. Uh, you not a little bit further away, I'm going to make a turn. And if you don't know why, just ask him. It's part of the wonder he's going to tell you. He's a sporting man. You either crash or win. <laughs> and I like that. <sighs> a ladies' man. And of course, it's my job to travel with you to make sure everything is properly arranged. I'm just gonna get into something comfortable. A man's man. I should be able to hear the. Why don't you drive a Clyde Torkel? Chicken pit special and the fastest chicken in the South. <laughs> you think it's easy driving with chicken feet? I've done some dumb things in my life, but this is the dumbest. I want you. You do? Yes. <laughs> I think it's important that you be here for this. I'll just do that and just put it right off of there and you'll be able Burt Reynolds is Stroker Ace. And it's going to take Ned Beatty, Jim Neighbors, Parker Stevenson, Bubba Smith, and Lonnie Anderson to put him in his place. You did it. This is Hurley Haywood. I've won five times at Daytona, three times at Le Mans, and two times at Sebring. And you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Right your computer from Google Tantalk, 1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, golfstreammotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us 
And if you've missed any of our past shows, don't forget to check out NostalgicRadioAndCars.com where you can go and listen to all of our shows. Good evening, uh, everybody, and uh, welcome to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Uh, Matt, how are we doing so far? Doing pretty good? Yeah, so far we're doing all right. So far we're doing all right? Okay, well, anyway, just in case you guys are watching the YouTube video, um, you're probably listening and you're hearing, uh, but I'm in an undisclosed location hidden deep in a bunker someplace in the... Uh, in the, in the middle of the state of Florida, someplace like that. But anyway, so uh, let me give you a little rundown. We're going to have part two this evening with uh, Waddell Wilson. He was the uh, Hall of Fame, NASCAR Hall of Fame honoree uh, back in the 90s, I believe, and uh, early 2000s. And uh, just legendary engine builder, NASCAR crew chief. I mean, just got some amazing stories. So we're going to have a lot of fun with him this evening. And I think what we might do is we might continue with a couple other NASCAR or at least uh, – um, high speed road race. Well, mostly I think circle track NASCAR kind of, um, theme is what we're going to carry on for the next, uh, probably a couple of weeks or something like that. Cause that's kind of interesting. We haven't really covered that. Uh, in the past we've had Robert Yates on, we've had uh, Lee Holman from Holman and Moody. We had the son uh, of John Holman. We've had, uh, Robert Yates has been on our show and, uh, we've done an interview with Ray Abraham. Um, and uh, of course he was the crew chief for, uh, Hendrix Motorsports. Actually, he was the guy that came in after Waddell Wilson. Cause I believe Waddell Wilson's actually was with, uh, Hendrix Motorsports for a short period of time there, uh, in the uh, early nineties. But anyway, so, uh, don't forget to tell your friends to tune in every Tuesday between seven and 8 PM to hear us here, uh, locally on the nostalgic rating cars, Tantalk talk radio network. Did I say that right? Anyway, um, what we're going to do is we're going to, um, well, I guess I might as well tell you what I did over the weekend. So over the weekend here, I had this uh, interesting event um, that was taking place up in Philadelphia. Now, I haven't been to Philadelphia, much less Pennsylvania, in a long, long, long time. The last time I was spent some time in Pennsylvania was uh, in 1977, and I was in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and it was for the Shelby American Meet, SAC 2. And uh, SAC is Shelby American Automobile Club. Okay, so we had SAC 1, SAC 2, SAC 3, and so forth. And I think we got SAC 46 or something like that coming up. And it may be in Indy this year. i got to double-check the calendar. But anyway, so uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania, back in 1977, pretty interesting. I drove my Cougar up back then. I had a, I had a 69 Shelby, which I still have, but, I, but it wasn't drivable at the time. I had a 70 Cougar. Uh, with a Cleveland and a four-speed in it, and it was a convertible, and it was an XR7, pretty nice piece, slightly modified engine. Um, I modified it with a shaker hood scoop, which was kind of cool because I acquired it from a friend of mine. I had a Boss 302, so it was kind of cool because the, the, the hood scoop that they put on a, on a 70 Cougar is kind of neat, and um, it's like a small version of a Boss 429, low flat. Um, they were not functional. I take that back. You, they were functional on a 428 Cobra Jet Cougar, like an Eliminator um, or a Cobra Jet car that had uh, uh, the optional Ram Air. In fact, in 69, the Ram Air cars all were R codes, and 70 Cougars only were Q codes, and they could still could be Ram Air or non-Ram Air. But anyway, so I, my, I kind of built my car to look a little bit like that. So I drove it up to Hershey, Pennsylvania, and I went to the Shelby meet. At that time, I think we had – I think there was 600 cars, I was told, that showed, showed up there. So it was basically Shelby's – and Cobras, Boss 302s, Boss 429s, Boss 351s, and all kinds of assorted hot rods. But since I didn't have a Shelby at the time, what they did is the non-Boss and non-Shelby cars, particularly non-Shelby cars, we had to park at the lower end of the parking lot. But it was pretty amazing, and um, and it was pretty cool. 
And I remember there, I got uh, a friend of ours that used to live in Orlando back in the day at a 289 Cobra. He was up there, so I kind of rolled around with him a little bit in that car. That was kind of neat. Had an opportunity to buy the car, and I didn't. So, you know, usual regrets. Should have bought it. Should have, could have, would have. In fact, I was talking with Alan this afternoon. We were talking about uh, the 427 car that was in Lakeland. And then this is in 1978. Then they were asking, and the gentleman's name was Bob Hamilton. And, and I've talked about this story before on the show. And uh, Bob had a... Uh, had a uh, Chevelle that he used to campaign that he raced, and it was called Red Alert. And it was a 70 LS6 Chevelle, and he ran that car. I think it ran maybe in the 11s back then on an 11-something index. And it was an automatic car. So he was, you know, obviously in drag racing, you're looking for consistency. Early days, it was just, you know, banging gears and having a good time. And then later, when he got down to seconds, you know, um, it uh, uh, for consistency reasons, you know, a, a lot of guys started going with automatics, you know, and uh, not necessarily that we're out of the hole. It's just that you know they could shift a lot quicker than you could power shift. At any rate, and of course I say that's debatable, but nonetheless. Um, but anyway, so he had that car, and AMT built a model of that car back in the day, and I actually had that model. So when he rolled into one of our Shelby events in in Lakeland the racetrack back in the days there used to be lakeland international raceway which was a circle track and a drag race track um i saw that car in a trailer and i thought well wait a minute what's this thing doing here so i ran over there and i talked to him i'd met him before and i knew he had a torino with a 427 in it and i heard rumors about the cobra but i didn't know about the red alert car so i asked him you know what's the story on that and he says well amt came to me because i was running real strong and they needed a car that they could put on their model and they asked me if i would uh uh, consent to uh, them using my car for marketing purposes, and then obviously I collected some royalties for it too, and I did. So that was pretty cool. And I remember years later, probably in the t- early 2000s, uh, Red Alert was for sale out at Bear Jackson in Scottsdale, so we saw it out there. So, um, but anyway, but Hamilton had this 427 Cobra, which is what he bought at a Shelby meet. And anyway, so I used to go over and visit him every once in a while when I was on my way to Orlando from from Clearwater. And then one day he told me he was thinking about selling a car. He had some stuff he was working on, and he was kind of selling thinning the herd, so to speak. And uh, he offered the car to me for twenty grand, and I didn't buy it. Obviously, I countered, but at the same time, I was looking. I was kind of getting in the Porsches, and I and I looked at the Porsche and. The Porsche was like a lot cheaper, a lot more affordable, and a lot more practical because you could drive it every day. And it's not like I needed a second car or a third car or a fourth car at the time. But at any rate, um, then he offers says, "Look, if you want the car, you can have it for eighteen grand. So eighteen grand for for a four twenty seven Cobra that was beautifully beautiful car. And he had used to keep it in a plexiglass um, case, <laughs> life size plexiglass case inside his shop. He was in the prefab mobile home building, motor mobile homes." Motor, prefab home house, home building industry is what he was in. And in fact, the building, the companies, the location is still there, and they're still building it, but he no longer owns it. But I think what was going on, we had a recession in the late 80, late 70s, and I think he was trying to thin the herd to save the business. And you know, so whatever that was all about, that was a different story back then. But anyway, but like a fool, I bought the Porsche instead, and I regret today. And I was just telling Alan that this afternoon. I said, that's one car I probably should have bought. But anyway, where I'm going with this. So I went to Philly this weekend, and they had an all-Porsche swap meet up there. So I flew in the Philly, got there in the afternoon, took forever to get my rental car. Traffic is crazy up there. And interesting, with Philadelphia Hi, Airport, this- there's no markings for rental car returns. So on the way back, that was a real treat, trying to find the rental car place, because you didn't exactly know where to get off at. So, And, of course, when you rent the car, they didn't tell us much. They give us much information either. Not a map, not a nothing. 
not even a phone number, but that part you could figure out. But nonetheless, um, so while I was there, I drove around and uh, I went to Little Italy because everybody says go to Little Italy, get yourself some food. And of course, in Philadelphia, you got to get a Philly. Well, I did. I got a Philly steak. And, uh, and I will tell you that probably wasn't the best one. It wasn't bad, but I've had better Phillies down here. So food's food. You know, it just depends on a good restaurant wherever you go. But And I also figured since I was in Little Italy, I might as well sample some Italian food. So I had a couple slices of pizza too. So that was that. Then I drove around and checked out, uh, you know, the sites and a few things like that, downtown uh, Penn Square. And then, of course, anytime you're in Philly, the first thing you have to do, because that's where the movie Rocky was filmed, you have to go retrace Rocky's, um, you know, his uh, his run down uh, down the down through Little Italy and and in all through Pennsylvania or Philly and then up the steps and you know and uh, you know you got to feel stronger. Taking, but at any rate, so up at the top of the hill, had, at the top of the hill, there's a there's a little little area there and there's a little it's kind of like a a plaque if you will. Or it's not really a plaque, but it's in the in in the stone or in the uh, in the in the in the tile there, I guess whatever you would call it. And it's and you put your feet there, and it says in front of it says Rocky. So I took a picture of that, and then his statue that used to be at the top, they moved that down to the bottom. So obviously I went and checked that out as well. Anyway, so then I went to the portion meet the next day. That was in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. It was a rainy, miserable day, but it was a really, really good swap meet. Met some cool people, a lot of cars there. The markets, uh, you know, with everything in general, it's pretty, pretty strong, pretty tough. I mean, you know, um, the collector car market is, is is still going strong in spite of everything that's going on out there. People are still paying crazy money for stuff. So those of you guys that are in the classic and collectible cars, regardless of whether it's Porsches, Mustangs, I mean, which are really cool, um, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty good. But anyway, I would encourage everybody to be a little on the conservative side anyway, but just buy what you need. But, you know, I'm not so I'm not I'm pushing speculating or anything like that. But I'm just saying the market's really, really good and enthusiasm still out there. And, you know, cars are still um, doing very, very well. In fact, if you go to some of the auction sites, you can clearly see that. And um, so, in fact, I stumbled on this other auction site by accident and I forget what it's called. Mustang Boss 302 or something 302 Mustang. And it's a website. It deals strictly with Mustangs. And there were some cars on there. And, of course, Alan, a good friend of ours, um, him and I were watching that today and checking out some of the cars. And, then, of course, most people go to bring a trailer, which, you know, everybody goes there, including Jay Leno. And uh, so uh, market's good. And then I ended up, uh, you know, had to check out a few cars there while I was there and some parts and all that other good stuff. But Pennsylvania, uh, the Carlisle was about 30 minutes from Hershey. So that's kind of like, you know, the, you know, the, the Carlisle people, which is the Millers basically own that fairground there in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. It's pretty nice. And, um, and they also do the shows down here in Florida, um, at Lakeland. I think they do the, the one there that's like once or twice a year. They do a fall one and a spring one. So with a car show, swap meet, auction, all that kind of stuff. So I guess you can check out their website. And um, But they're a pretty good bunch. And then uh, I think in June is the Carlisle All Ford Show. So I might go up there for that. That would be pretty interesting now that I kind of know the lay of the land a little bit. But anyway, I think it's time to uh, fire up a little music here. And then we're going to go ahead and get our guest on. We're going to continue with part two with Waddell Wilson. Should be an interesting story. And he's got some great stories himself. And uh, it's just fascinating when you get a chance to talk to some of these legends because they were there when they were making history back in the 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s and 80s. And early 90s, for that matter. So you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I think, uh, Matt, you're going to fire up that uh, uh, little tune that we played, that little ditty. And then uh, we're going to go to a clip. And Well, we're actually, we're not going to do a clip. We're just going to go right to the interview after the, uh, the intro there. So uh, you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and we'll be right back. 
Hey, you boys better hold on, because I'm going to have to stand on it. He had a mean streak two feet wide. A son of a gun with a taste of fun and more than his share of pride. Take a dirt road curve with a devil's nerve. Make a car dance across the mud. And haul and shine was his regular line till the track got in his blood. It was a real hot shot and he bragged a lot. The man that fool could drive. Cause he loved the feel of the steering wheel and the girls with the bedroom eyes. And in a race of tide or a bar roof fight, old Stroker stole the show. A backstretch blazer, a real hell razor, and a racetrack Romeo. This is NASCAR Hall of Fame crew. All right, Matt, are we back? Are we live? Yes, sir. Okay, we're back, I guess. Matt, are we there? Yes, sir, you're good. Oh, we're good. Okay, okay, okay. It's, uh, you know, this is, we're doing a long-distance show, so you know how that goes. Or so anyway, we're back, and you're tuning into the subject of getting cars, and it's time to introduce our special guest back for part two. I'm delighted to welcome back to the show legendary NASCAR engine builder and crew chief Waddell Wilson. Waddell, how are you doing this evening again? Great. You? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. Um, not in the studio tonight. I'm uh, at our remote studio here somewhere in, in, the, in the middle of the state, but anyway, um, I... Uh, was really looking forward to part two. So I had a couple of questions because while the la last time we we did the show, we did the interview, I had a few people after the show ask me if you would, if you would, if you could disclose some of the secrets of the 427 motor. So like when you first started building motors in the early 60s, um, were those tunnel port, tunnel wedge, or just state, straight uh, 427 motors? And then... What were some of the secrets over time? I'm sure you figured out how to, to make the engines a little bit bigger, a little bit better, a little bit stronger, and still stay within the rules. Well, there's a lot of little things. You know, I couldn't go into detail all of it, but, right. you know, the main thing is be a perfectionist putting it together and make sure you have the correct parts. And the next thing is, is make sure you got a camshaft that works. So that's always a big Big issue on those 427 to get the right cam tape in. Was the secret in the heads? I mean, the bottom of any engine, whether you're building a Ford, a Chevrolet, or a Chrysler, and I think we mentioned this last week, is that, you know, they're it's basically an air pump. 
But the trick is to get the fuel in and out. You know, the fuel in, the exhaust out. And uh, so I'm guessing, and that's why I asked, you know, because Ford had a, a number of different sets of heads back in those days. And then I, I, were you guys running steel heads, aluminum heads? Were they 427 high risers, low risers, tunnel ports, tunnel wedges? Did any of that stuff come in? Or was this stuff that well, was strictly... Well, we started, in? you know, started out in the early 60s, it was just the low riser. And then we got a medium riser. Well, we went with a high riser, and then now started like it, so we went back to a medium riser. And then after that, we ended up with tunnel ports and had aluminum heads at the same time. And that was the best thing, especially in 68 when they... When NASCAR let us run two four barrels against the Hemi, I mean that was the best four twenty seven that I ever built. Was you know that with the two four barrels on it. Now, when did you feel back in the day that the rules favored Chrysler or possibly later, obviously Chevrolet? And did did you did you sometimes feel that Ford was kind of treated? unfairly because i mean that's kind of like the old rumor back in the day it seems like every time ford came ford guys came up with an idea they changed the rules and he had you had to go back to the drawing board well you know when they came with that hemi i mean we didn't have a chance with them especially at daytona and talladega now we got on the big trucks and i've been on the show with richard petty before and he'd always say you know the problem we had when we went to the corner was it would not turn it had all that weight up front with that 420 427 or 8 or which it was that Hemi. 426, that, yeah. That was a big engine when you did see them when you change an engine. That was a big piece. So, and then, so the, the but but as far as rules and stuff, did you, did, did they, how much, engine rules, how much of a factor did they play? And did they, and did they limit the Ford guys as much as they did everybody else? Because like you said, no, you, they you went tried. to I know Bill France was always trying to keep a level a level playing field. He didn't want to favor one over the other. And they mm -hmm. was awful careful whenever they'd okay engines or body styles or whatever, you know, to make sure that they didn't have a runaway because Bill France was always looking out for the for the fans, and he wanted to, all the cars to come across the start finish line together. He told me that several times. But anyway, it was hard to, you know, to keep it even. You know, you had Chrysler, and you had you know, had the Chevrolet, and, and then you had Ford, and it, it was a it was a quite a rival between the groups, of, between the manufacturers. It was a big rival. Um, you started there when sixty two, sixty three is when you started with Holman and Moody. Sixty three, first to sixty three. Okay, when you were there, there was a car that they were building. Around that time, it might have been 62, 63, somewhere, but it was a, a modified Falcon, and they built three of them, and they were called the Challenger. Did, those, did, did you ever see any of those cars? Were they around about the time you were there? Because somebody actually sent me an email or a text on that last week, asked me if I knew anything about those cars, and to go ahead and ask you that. That was, you know, it might have been part of a road race project or something like that, and I know you were strictly NASCAR, but obviously if you're in the shop, you would have seen some of the other cars and some of the other projects that were going on. Well, they had drag cars that come in, and, you know, they were different. And then we had rally cars that send over to Europe. We'd, we'd uh, build those out of home and money, build the engines and all. But uh, any wild-up cars, no, I didn't see any of those. 
you know, it was a small shop, so, you know, we seen everything going on. Did you, so, but you were strictly working on, on the NASCAR motors. You didn't work on any of the other, like the road race engines or anything like that then, right? Very rarely they'd pull me off of the NASCAR cars because I was always on whoever the company's car was. That's who I built engines for, you know, like Lorenzen or Pearson or Allison. You know, that was my job. And then make two, and then go to the racetrack with it, take care of it at the same time. So then, and then it was what, in the late 70s is when you got involved and you became a crew chief? In, in uh, 79. 79. And, uh, and uh, so what was the first team you were crew chiefing, crew, crew, the crew chief for? With, uh, Buddy Baker. Was Buddy Baker, okay. Yeah. And so then, and you guys were running what, Chevrolets back then, right? Right. Well, we had Chevrolets and Pontiac. And okay. then at one time we switched to Ford. Okay. So give us kind of a comparison from your perspective as an engine builder when you look at the small block Chevrolet and the small block Ford and the small block Pontiac. And as a crew chief, does it matter to you whether it's a Ford or a Chevrolet or a Pontiac or did it matter – because you, because your talents, you know, as far as building an engine, you just tried to get the most out of the engine, regardless of what it was. Oh, that's very true. You know, you, you know, whatever you dealt with, you know, always got the best parts coming out of Detroit, whether it's Ford, Chevrolet, or, or whatever. And normally, that's what it was. It'd be a Ford or Chevrolet, and the Chevrolet engine fit in the Pontiac. So, and then even the Oldsmobile back in '80 when we set that record at Daytona. With Buddy Baker, that was a that was a Chevrolet engine. So, what kind of tricks did you? Where again? Is it is it is it fundamentally the short blocks are basically there's only so much you can do to a short block, but the rest of it has to do with the intake and the heads. Well, that's true. The intake manifold, you know, there's a lot there with carburetors, also that, and then the camshaft. Those three items you really work hard at. Now, born stroke, you know, we'd, we'd mess with that sometimes, you know, and see if there's something there. But, you know, most of the time we was on the intake manifolds and head working on those carburetors. It wasn't, you know, wasn't a lot you could do with them. And, you know, talking about back with Holman Moody, John Holman would come to me time again, put that big finger in my chest, say, what else <laughs> you get caught cheating, I'll fire you. So I never did go out on the limb because, and I was glad because it, he said, you've got it good enough to win without cheating. And then, and that's the way I kept it that way all from the whole time I worked on those race cars. When you were working, when you were working on some of those, uh, motors, let's say the like the later ones and stuff. And, uh, so I remember being at, uh, Amelia Island a few years ago and the question of cheating always comes up, okay? So, and I know that, you know, there's a there's a certain camaraderie among NASCAR guys, you know, and everybody gets together and everybody just kind of talks a little bit. But you obviously have a certain allegiance to your team and your crew and your driver and everything. But they were talking about, Ray showed up there one day with a bunch of, and it, it was the, the title of the seminar at Amelia Island a few years back, with, and Ray was the, uh, the, the moderator, was Unfair Advantage. Okay, so he didn't really come out and say they were cheating. They were just saying unfair advantage. But he showed up. The thing that, that that everybody got the biggest kick out of 
was this carburetor, and it looks, let's just say, like a, a regular 850 or something like that. But the bottom of the base plate would actually slide out. You could rotate, you rotated it and slid it back in. You could, if you weren't looking at it, you wouldn't see it. But there was, you know, it would it slid out and it would change, alternate the 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 venturi size, and and then he pulled out uh, a bumper that was beautifully chromed and it was aluminum. It wasn't steel, and there was a number of other little parts there that he had. How much of that actually went on back in the day? I mean, were you privy to some of that? And did that go on? And I mean, how much of it? Let's put it this way: Did it go on? And and uh, um, you know, share your thoughts on that. Well, I'm, I know somebody was going on. I wasn't involved in any of it because you know I'd learned not to do any of that. Right, and I stuck to it. But it, you know, they. I remember whenever we downsized and put the restrictor plates on the engine. And I remember telling Bill France, I said, this is Cheater's Paradise. And it was after that. Because that was the worst thing that ever happened. They put those restrictor plates. Because everybody then, all they work on is try to get air around that restrictor plate into the engine. And they, they come up with some wild things. Besides Smokey Unique, who was one of the other um, notorious uh, car builders, crew chiefs, engine builders that always kind of wasn't necessarily in the limelight, but he always tried to get away with stuff. Who who would have been one of your uh, contemporaries back in the day that would, uh, would would fit that profile? Yeah, I remember smoking, but I, you know, I wasn't around him that much. Of course, later in the years, we became friends. But anyway, you know, he had that reputation, and he, he stayed in with NASCAR pretty much all the time. But uh, and then another thing, that was a little before... You know, he was big into it before I got into it. And then he was still into it when I got in, but it, it, pretty soon he faded out. But he was an well, innovator with a lot of things from what I was always told. Well, like, okay, so, like, and, and I'm going to use Can-Am racing as an example, okay? Can-Am and Trans-Am. You know, back in the 60s and the, and the early 70s, there was a lot of innovation going on because there wasn't necessarily, particularly in Can-Am, there wasn't really a lot of rules the rules didn't come about until, you know, somebody protested something and then it became a rule and then people tried to get around get around it continuously. But there was a lot of innovation going on in in those in Trans Am and, and in um Can Am. How about in NASCAR? How much innovation was going on? You know, cause, because the like the old saying used to be is racing race cars are basically test beds for production cars you know you you develop stuff in racing and then if it makes good sense from a performance standpoint or a safety standpoint then we'll, we'll go ahead and incorporate that into production cars did did that go on in nascar i mean did, was that uh um any part of the dialogue or any part of the 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 the, the thinking back in the day i remember back in the 60s Ford Motor Company, you know, this is when I was with Homer and me. There were six engineers that go with us to the racetrack, Daytona, Talladega, and one of them was the engine man. He'd come and sit and work on you know, my workbench and watch me build the engine. And, you know, they were always coming up with ideas and things, though, but they always kept it legal. You know, they were trying to make things better naturally, you know, with camshaves and intakes and, and so forth. But uh, they... They were the smartest six people I've ever worked with. When you, in, in the later days, 
Well, Home and Moody, when they were racing, who built their chassis? Were they built in-house, or were they like Banjo Matthews or Laughlin, or who built their chassis? No, he's in-house. Everything was done in-house? Yeah. Okay. So later, when you were crew chief, and then you were with Buddy Baker and them, who built the chassis on the cars that you were racing with the the, the Monte Carlos and the, and the Pontiacs and, and the Oldsmobiles and stuff? Whose chassis did you use? Well, you know, Banjo Matthew, he's building cars. He's been the real steer. And uh, Mike Laughlin was building the front steer car, which that's what Bobby Allison a lot of people liked. And, and that's what we ended up getting going with later on, the front steer car. But the chassis, you know, it was just pretty much a stock chassis that we worked with. You know, wasn't much you could do with them. And the um, bait was low on them, so you didn't want to build holes in them with light that part of it. You always worked at keeping the weight low and left. Okay. Were the engines offset at all in those cars back in the day? I mean, you know how they used to talk about, well, we, the car's set up on a stagger, you know, particularly in a, uh, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a circle track car? No, when you drop the engine in in that frame, you you didn't have much room to work with, and then the headers on it too. You know, you didn't try to work with moving engines, you know, right or left. You know, they they just so much room you could deal with, and that was it. So, no, we didn't move them. And you know, the thing I ran into is them boys that want to move the engine left, and then the headers would hit, and then they'd want to beat on the headers, and I would get all over them, but you know, can't beat on the headers. You can shim the engine back over to the right or whichever way it needs to go, but don't beat on the header. <laughs> okay. When you were, uh, I was told once um, by, and I'm trying, I can't remember his name right now, but it was Clipstort Racing because this is a car that I actually had. I, I owned at one point in time. It was that 83, 84, 85, and ultimately 86 uh, Pontiac that was owned by Clipstort Racing. And Daryl, can't think of his last name right now. Uh, was the crew chief, and he was telling me when I had a discussion with him, he was telling me that he um, all the all the team the the crew chiefs when they would build these cars, they they had their own little style and own particular um, like a signature uh, modification that they did to their cars. Okay, so for example, it could have been the placement of of some uh of certain things in the dashboard it could have been some extra bracing in the car um what were if 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 if, what were what would have been some of the unique things that you did to your cars that were unique to you and different from let's say it's like some of the other crew chiefs uh when they built their cars and they and they had the car set up to to run on the track well you know the cars come you know say if you got from Laughlin or banjo you know, they come in, you know, with all the latest stuff already on them, and you didn't mess with that that much. You know, just keep, you know, we always work to keep the weight low and left and make sure that, you know, and then we didn't want to drag things, you know. But it, there wasn't a lot that we we do to the, the cars, really, after we get them. And, then, you know, and the big thing is when you put the body on the car, you know, to and fit the template. You know, you always wanted a certain way you wanted to do that. But then you had to be careful to get to inspection with Astro when you did things like that. Okay. Um, back in those days, okay, like in the early days, 
like when you were at home in a Moody, how many race cars did you actually have? So in other words, if uh, Fireball Roberts or Fred Lorenzen was driving cars or David Pearson or something like that, and he was with whatever team, how many cars did they have? They have like one or two or three cars. They were lucky to have two. And I oh, remember really? Lorenzen had a 61 Ford chassis locked and he just put, kept putting the bodies on it. And kept leaving using that same body, which was still legal, because it, you know. But he just loved that feel, of that chassis. But uh, as far as uh, engineering any of that stuff, we didn't mess with. Okay, and then in later years, uh, it seemed like, like I know Cliff Stewart Racing. I'll use them as an example because I kind of know the, a few of the guys up there. They uh, they had four cars, or they might have had six cars. So when you were crew chiefing with 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 Buddy Baker and those guys, how many cars did you guys have? We we could normally we'd end up trying to at least have two, two. Yeah. Okay. So we then, wasn't big into building a bunch of race cars. <laughs> okay. And then we'd always, you know, if you wreck it, you bring it back and you repair it. You fix it and keep going again and just try to keep making that one better each time you run it. All right. And um, what about now? There was a couple different tracks that were road race tracks. So I imagine you were racing up at Watkins Glen, and I would imagine you were probably racing out at Riverside. I think those are the two uh, road race circuits that NASCAR ran back in the day. How were your cars set up then? I mean, those because the, the road race cars were set up differently than than the than the circle track cars and the cars that uh, like for the for Daytona and 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 Talladega and and, and the smaller tracks like Bristol and stuff. Yeah, I remember getting ready to go to Riverside, and we would, you know, you'd move everything instead of the left, you'd go move it over to the right and then put the filler neck in the right side instead of the left side. And, uh, you know, and then offset everything, it's what little you could do, offset it the other way. And the same cars we'd run at the Oval Track here in, in North Carolina, and there was the same cars that we run at Riverside. It's amazing to remember that, that they were the same cars. Interesting, interesting, because I thought the suspension had to be set up differently because for right and left-hand turns. or is it, Oh, you or, did. Or, the brake frames, yeah, you changed the, the suspension, the brake frames and all that. You had to, to get the offset the way you wanted for Riverside. Okay. Now, today, by comparison, the, the teams, um, well, even in the late 80s, early 90s, I think, um, they started having more and more cars. They started having three and four and five and six cars and they had scars cars for specific tracks and so back when you were racing what how much did it cost let's say to put together your basic you know a good competitive nascar like that pontiac that you had or that chevrolet that you had that uh buddy baker drove back in the day how much what, what how much did a car like that cost back then probably uh, somewhere around three to four thousand dollars something in that neighborhood depends on who you was working with and who built it and and what the extra store that you had them put on it, you know. But they wasn't all that expensive. Okay. The motors that you guys were running back then, were those uh, wet sump or dry sump engines that you were running? No, they dry sump. In okay. 68, I think from 68 on, everything was dry sump. Okay. At least everything I built. All right, and did and so the what the advantage of the dry sump was was just it was mainly for for better oiling and you know because on the turns and stuff like sloshing around and everything like that, right? Well, the big thing is you know you didn't you didn't have to worry about oil because you had a, a, another tank, 
you know, okay. you run the oil from the engine down. And then the big thing is, is get the engine low. Because you didn't have that big oil pan on the bottom of your engine. And and that would let us get them, you know, small little pans with a dry thump. And that really got the engine down low where we wanted it. The, um, the tr- so the engine basically is a dry sump system. The transmission in the rear end, did they have external uh, oil coolers on them as well? The rear end did. Now you run a road course, you had to do the transmission also. So okay. we had pumps, you know, to pump the, you know, the gear loop in both places. But as when long you, as you was in you high all- gear, like, well, when you was in high gear, like uh, any place except the road course, you you know, you didn't need a oil cooler on the transmission. Okay. When you were crew chief, did you, what, tell us, it's, the, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about what is what are some of the duties and responsibilities of a crew chief, and who do you report to? Well, I know when I become crew chief, there were three of us in the shop in 19, the end of 79, getting ready for the 80 Daytona 500. And, you know, I just, I knew about aerodynamics, rolling resistance, and uh, that's what I worked with on that, you know, to get where I wanted it. And then I was in building my own engine, so I didn't have to worry about that. I took care of that. But that was, uh, I didn't want to be a crew chief. I'd, I'd rather just do the engines and let somebody else take care of the race car. But anyway, however near he put me in charge, he said, you're going to run the whole show. I first started telling him I wasn't going to do it, but then I said, well, I don't have to argue with nobody. I'll just do what I want to do it and how I feel is right. Interesting. Give us your thoughts on uh, NASCAR today. <laughs> I'm just glad I went through it when I did. Cause it was it was a lot of hard work, a lot of fun, you know. But now it's it's a dis oh, totally different, you know. And uh, you know the rules now. I mean, you boy, you do anything at least little thing wrong, like change a different bolt or something, you're in trouble. So, but so, the one thing I'd like to see them do, you know, you you watch the Xfinity cars when they wreck, and you yeah. see the when they hit the wall, the crush comes back in them. You know, it crushes back a foot or two, and that takes takes a lot of that. You know, your brain don't try to run out of your head. It just <laughs> okay. stop, or your innards. Right. And, and then you watch them cup cars hit, and they didn't know they know crushing them. Them old cars that we had, they had all kind of crushing. And I think that's the one that one thing that we NASCAR would look at. That, and so that maybe somehow they put some crush into those these new cars. So and you're saying that? Cars. Go ahead. I was going to say. So you're saying basically the older cars that you guys built, you you feel were safer than the cars today. Oh yeah, yeah. He had the crush in it, you know. You, okay. you know, whenever they hit something, it wouldn't just be a sudden stop like these new cars, cup cars is, and that's what rattles our brain around. You know, even the even the expensive cars, you watch them when they wreck. They there's a foot or two they'll crush in on the right or left or the front. You know, that really helps absorb the the impact on the body. Would it be fair to say 
you know, and I, and I know this from road racing cause I've had a number of road race guys. Um, they used to say, like I interviewed Sam Posey one time, Sam, I asked Sam Posey, I said, Sam, the morning of the race, what goes through your mind? What do you think about? What's, what are you thinking? And he says, when I'm standing in front of the mirror and I'm looking at myself, will I ever brush my teeth again? And wow. that was very profound. This is a road race guy. I had Brian Redman on, Vic Elford on, uh, people like that. And they would say, you know, and Brian Redman said, the reason I got out of racing was because it was like, I didn't know who, of all of us on the track, we didn't know who was going to, we knew somebody was going to get killed, but we didn't know who. We didn't know whether it was going to be us or, or me or somebody else. From your experiences with NASCAR drivers, did they, did the NASCAR drivers ever have that kind of concern? Did they ever really worry about safety? What was going through a NASCAR driver's head back in those days? And then you as a crew chief, you know, cause you have a relationship with your driver. Share that with us. Well, you know, I've, I've thought about that several times, but ne- they never cared at all about getting in that race car. You know, like Kelly Yarbrough, he'd look at me and he'd walk in and he said, what if you think anything, do it to it. Just don't slow it down. And if you don't <laughs> want me to use it, don't give it to me. He was an amazing guy, but, but they, they know the, you know, the hazard of what they were doing. But the thing I thought about is make sure everything's right on that race car. Nothing's left loose because you've got the drivers in your hands. You know, if you're not careful, you can cause them to get hurt. So I was worried more about making sure the boys that worked on the car and myself took care of every little detail and go over it with a fine-tooth comb to make sure that there wasn't nothing that would hurt the driver if something happened to him. When you guys were doing testing and tuning, as an example, okay, you know, qualifying or just, you know, before qualifying, just testing and tuning or doing track stuff, at that point in time, you can pretty much determine if there's going to be any major issues with the cars. And, and as a crew chief, your responsibility, like you just mentioned, is to make sure it's kind of their shakedown runs is just make sure everything's nice and neat and tidy. Did how many uh, like Yarborough or Baker did? And we, you know, you mentioned Lorenzo that he was always involved in it. Were there any other drivers later that were equally as involved as Lorenzo was with his cars in the '60s, when you were crew chiefing through the seven, through the '80s and early '90s. Well, they talked Lorenz, take Lorenz, and he was he was basically his own crew chief. Basically, I mean, uh-huh. we'd go test, and he'd get out and measure the frame height. He'd measure everything and have his own notebook. And you know, he took care of that car himself. And and when we was at, at the shop, he put on his uniform just the same as we did. And he'd come in there seven days a week or five or whatever it took, work on that race car just like we did. But he was the only driver I ever seen this. Now, Fireball, he'd come in of a morning race day or practice or whatever. He'd get up on a workbench and watch us. He wouldn't talk to us. He'd just watch us. You know, he didn't want to aggravate us or anything and distract from what we were doing. But uh, the drivers, every one of them was different. You know, they, they went in a different way, but I never seen any of them that were scared to get in a race car. Now, I know some of them it was, but it wasn't none of, none of it was drove our cars. What was it like for you to win the uh, NASCAR Hall, uh, to be honored in the NASCAR Hall of Fame? What was that experience like for you? 
Well, that was quite amazing. I, you know, I've seen when they started that, I've seen some of the guys getting in the comments that's making everything. And my comment was, if you don't think I'm deserving, don't vote for me, please. But what an honor. I mean, it's uh, something that's unbelievable to be, in, be inducted into the Hall of Fame. What year was that for you? About 2020. Wow. So that was just a few years ago. Yeah. So when you when you're in there and 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 you're going through the what 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 and you're and do you know ahead of time that you have received this award? Do you have time to prepare, or are you just like uh, it's, you're just on the spot and uh, and you got to walk up to the stage, receive your award, and then make a speech? No, it's not like that. You know what happened? They the committee. And they meet ever so often, which we're going to have to meet here in a couple of weeks, you know, to pick out the ones for next year. But, uh, you know, and then they will, after the meeting's over and everybody's voted, then they will announce it to who was the winner. And that's how I found out. I was at home whenever they announced it on the TV. Oh, wow. And, uh, I got in. And, you know, the, well, it, it was just, an honor, unbelievable. What do What do you feel is your biggest legacy? In other words, what do you, how do you doing want it to right? Remember? How do you? I mean, for doing you know, it obviously right. we don't want no. you to go away, but I mean, if you how do you want to be best remembered? I mean, what like for what do you, What do you think is your proudest accomplishment? Well, winning the Daytona races, but doing it legal and not people, you know, never had to look over my back and. and worry about getting caught for anything, you know, it was, it was just, uh, feel good whenever you, you leave like Daytona races like that and you won it and you know, you're legal. And you know, that, that's just the accomplishment of the whole thing. And then people, you know, in the garage area that knows that your, your car is right. Cause them guys that you work with, they know everything going on. The driver knows and they all talk amongst each other. So if you're going to cheat, you can, you know, there's a bunch of them going to know about it. So, so the Daytona, the Daytona wins are basically your most memorable wins, and so is so Daytona is like the Super Bowl of races. Is that probably fair to say? Yeah, it, you know, you put everything in going to Daytona. I mean, you test, you go down there. Used to we did for a week or so and and test. And, you know, that's what the manufacturers want. Everybody wants to win Daytona. That's the Super Bowl of NASCAR. And if you can win that one, you really accomplish something. And that's the way I feel that when we won it. The biggest win at Daytona, the most surprised I ever was, was in 75 with Benny Parson, LG DeWitt, was at Riverside. And this guy gave Benny a set of pistons. And he come to me tickled to this because money was tight. And I looked at him pissing. I said, those are drag race pistons, Ben. He said, yeah, but he says they'll make it. I said, well, we ain't running quarter miles. We're running 500 miles. So anyway, we built that engine, and I, and we didn't have enough money to me to get up, build another engine. So I went through all the scrap that we'd blowed up the year, year before when we had 366 cubic inch, and then they lowered it down to 358. So anyway, I put one of them together, and, and we get to Daytona, and two laps on that on that new engine, it blowed up. And then I've got that old engine. I bet all them new parts that blowed up the year before. 
and I didn't, didn't have no whitey for I built with. So they come down next to them. Uh-oh. Well, yeah, we are just about out of time here, so I guess uh, we won't get the chance to finish that story. But uh, I want to thank you. And uh, it was truly a pleasure. And sometime down the road, I, hopefully I can get to uh, North Carolina sometime and I can meet you. And again, I want to thank you very much for being a guest oh, on our radio that'd show. that'd be great. That'd be great. All right, very good. In the meantime, you take care, and I wish you all the best of luck. And I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Don't forget to check us out here every Tuesday night between 7 and 8 p.m. on the Tan Talk Radio Network for the most fascinating and legendary names in motorsports. And uh, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be doing NASCAR. So, uh, again, special thanks to my good friend and uh, uh, Waddell Wilson. And uh, Google him and learn about him and read up on him. And he's a great dude. In the meantime, I want to thank all my listeners again. And stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. Your arms, country in your arms.